What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to RizzoCast, episode number 16. And we are joined by one of my favorite follows on Twitter. You guys can find him at Anderson Picard because it is Anderson Picard. He is a baseball, football, um, baseball, football junkie. And this kid, like literally editor-in-chief, talk primetime, our primetime sports talk. It's at talk prime time. He's the editor-in-chief there. He's also a writer for MLB Daily uh, Dish. And he's a manager at Sports Writers Pack, which I follow. It's It helps. He's also a uh, member of the Internet Baseball Writers of America, or Association of America. And he's also a youth sports referee, which you know what? We're going to get into that in a little bit, but because I'm so interested in that. Uh, but Anderson, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, thanks for thanks for asking. Thanks for having me on. Really excited to talk. You know, whatever we're going to talk about today, there's a lot of a lot of stuff to talk about. So that should be good. Yeah, for sure. So you know, th- the pandemic has changed so many things, and uh, you know, the way we look at different things, the way we look at hygiene, even the way we cherish sports. So without sports, I mean, I was going nuts. I'm sure you were too. How has your life changed due to this pandemic? I mean, it's been crazy just, you know, just I was thinking back about how it's changed by the day and by the week and by the month, because back in March, you know, the days, uh, three or four days before Rudy Gobert tested positive coronavirus, my high school was on March break. And uh, we had a, we had a baseball trip scheduled for to head down to uh, Orlando or the Orlando area. Uh, there's a bunch of high schools that go down there, uh, some college teams too, they have their own tournament. But you know, there were a lot of New England high schools that were set to go down there and we were going to play against them. We had a week down there, uh, a couple, we were going to attend a couple spring training games. We were going to play a bunch of games under the lights in that Florida heat and stuff like that. So uh, it was going to be a great, you know, a great week of baseball. And then it all came crashing down when Rudy Gobert tested positive and then, you know, just everything happened there. I think that same day, uh, March Madness was canceled. Uh, I think the Ivy League canceled all their uh, spring sports. And then I believe they also announced fall sports that day, but I don't know for sure. That might have been later on. Um, but that was when, you know, this was all declared an official pandemic. So that day, you know, just thinking back of different benchmarks and days. Uh, so that day was huge because that, you know, that left so much uncertainty. And then unfortunately, all that uncertainty was clarified uh, in a negative way with, you know, my trip was canceled. Uh, uh, NFL free agency was all basically shut down. Um, you know, it was, it was remote, like signings still happened, but nothing was official right away because no one could, you know, be in person. Major league baseball uh, suspended spring, uh, suspended spring training. And then, you know, soon decided that they would have at least two weeks before the regular season would start. And at that point I was crushed. I was like, really no baseball for another month, but little did we know it was going to be more than that. So, you know, fast forward now to July baseball is finally back hopefully here to stay. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit here, but uh, it's, it's just been crazy, you know, from personal life, just to, like you said, having sports as entertainment, you know, really all over the place. It's just been truly crazy and unprecedented. Yeah, for sure. And uh, like you, I had a trip planned to uh, our journalism team at my high school is going to travel to Nashville for the high school national journalism convention it was literally the last thing to get canceled and, you know, canceling all the flight stuff. It's just something that I don't wish upon anybody And uh, baseball, you know, we were ready to play a game and before first pitch they canceled. Um, anyhow. So 
everybody I've talked to has come up with something that they've, you know, kind of done more during quarantine. Uh, you know, I mentioned a lot that I've read more. Um, I've, I've taken on a sports writing class done by uh, Carrie Crowley, who um, is possibly going to be a guest coming up here soon, who is the Giants beat writer for the Bay Area News Group. Um, and I've, I've been more, I've been going on walks, been going on runs, been doing my resistance bands. So what have you picked up that maybe like is something new, like a hobby or something that you've done more since this quarantine shelter in place stuff has happened? Yeah, well, I mean, I wish I could say I started reading more like you, but I, uh, I've still slacked off in that department. I know first week I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Like I now have 16 hours a day. I'm just going to be at home. You know, that's plenty of enough time to read. But, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated magazines is about the furthest I've gotten there. But anyways, uh, you know, just going for runs, like you said, uh, you know, playing baseball as much as I can. I have a younger brother and my dad coaches my younger brother's team. So I've been able to play with them. Uh, you know, my brother's team was... Um, their season was pushed back, but it just started up. So I'm helping coach his, his all-star team. So that's great. Um, you know, just trying to do as much as I can to stay outside because it, I've, I had noticed that, you know, there was a week or two there where I was really just inside just because I couldn't find a lot to do. And I just noticed I was feeling really just gloomy and really down. So uh, I was able to, you know, pick up that, that baseball, uh, you know, that experience as a coach for his team. So that was really fun. Uh, I added youth uh, umpiring to my list this year. I've I had done uh, flag football and basketball refereeing before, but umpiring is, is really cool. So I've been doing that. Uh, trying to gain some fantasy football knowledge. This is the first year I'll be doing fantasy football writing. So I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time doing my rankings and stuff like that. Uh, trying to connect with family. Uh, I have family who live nearby, so I'm glad about that. But even then, you know, it's been restricted just how much we can see them because we just we want to play it safe. Some of them are older, you know, some of them have jobs that they, you know, that they've been, they've been having to go in two or three days a week to a hospital or something like that. So just trying to keep in touch with everyone and I guess be as normal as like, like have, have my life be as normal as my life can be, you know, in variations, like still trying to play baseball or see family or write and stuff like that. You know, it's obviously so weird, but just adjusting and trying to figure out how to, you know, have that type of, normalcy in a time that is completely not normal for sure and then you hear that baseball is coming back you hear all the the rumors with the and all the negotiation the the really really hard to take in negotiations the um players association not backing down major league baseball not backing down um and ultimately you know there was a season that rob manfred pushed and it was 60 games and here we are now uh you know a week into the 60 game season when you found out that baseball was going to come back, maybe not in the conventional way, because we thought there would be like an official agreement between the Players Association and baseball. So when you found out that baseball was coming back and they unveiled the schedule and, and all the, the, the travel plans that they have, how excited were you? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I, it felt like we had been not misled, but, you know, hyped up and then, heartbroken when you know things would fall through and stuff like that I know back in early June I think it was there was a report from I'm pretty sure it was ESPN that said you know they were close to agreement on a safety protocol I'm like oh great baseball is back but obviously there was more than that um, so it you know baseball is finally back and I was excited about that when that final uh, announcement was made that they'd be implementing the shortened season I think 
you know, I keep saying it's, it didn't really hit me at once. Um, I, you know, I think it didn't fully hit me until I saw baseball back on my TV on July 23rd. Um, but just having, you know, I was able to write that story. I was the person who wrote that story about baseball coming back on MLB Daily Dish. So I covered that. Uh, and just seeing the details, you know, I think being informed and knowing the logistics of what was happening really gave me that feeling of, you know, okay, baseball is finally coming back. I think I recorded a podcast two days after uh, the announcement was made. So that kind of hyped me up too. Once I was able to read the logistics out loud to an actual audience, you know, hear my voice, say those words. And I, you know, there were, there were a few times in that podcast where I just stopped and just basically said, baseball is back. This is incredible. And I think, you know, those were the times when I was really focusing on it and almost reporting on it and like sharing the news that it really, you know, really hit me. Like, yeah, baseball's coming back. We finally got this. We made it through that crazy three or four month span. And, you know, it's going to be crazy for another who knows how long, but at least we have baseball by our side to help us out. For sure. And with baseball, there comes a little bit new, some, some foreign uh, aspects to the game here in 2020, maybe things that we'll see in the next CBA, things we'll definitely see in the next CBA. Um, first of all, I want to get your take. So this one was announced long before COVID and, you know, Rob Manfred and company have been obsessed with the, um, with the thought of trying to fast, try, trying to make games go faster. And I've, I've said this for a while, it, you know, the, the really casual baseball fans who maybe not, not are caught up with the everyday grind that a super fan would be interested in. Maybe that fan is kind of like, Oh, wow, these games are too slow. You know, it's the ninth inning. It's already, you know, past my bedtime, whatever. But I really never saw it as much as a of a problem. And they implement this this three batter minimum rule and um, managers that really utilize the matchup. Um, and I'm biased here, but Bruce Bochy was the best manager I've ever seen with a bullpen, uh, especially in postseason play. Um, and the three batter minimum rule really, for me, uh, screws it up, and it screws up the the strategy in the game. And uh, I just don't think it's necessary. I think. A lot of team, a lot of managers, you know, Gabe Kapler last night or the time of the recording, Gabe Kapler last night forgot about the rule and, and didn't know how to, and maybe that is his fault, but it probably is, but um, <laughs> he didn't know how to, how to manage around the three batter minimum rule. So I was wondering what your thoughts about that rule is. Yeah. I mean, first of all, just to address the, the pace of play aspect of it for, at first is personally, I don't like it. You know, I'm fine with watching a four hour baseball game. Exactly. Like you said, it's the super fan in us that loves it. But at the same time, I also hate scrolling through Twitter or Instagram or something like that and seeing fans saying baseball is too long. Baseball is boring. You know, baseball is easy. Stuff like that. I hate those those types of, like you said, casual fans or not even fans of the game that say baseball is boring. So if it's if, you know, if speeding the game up a little bit is going to help those fans, you know, realize what baseball actually is and how amazing the sport is, then I'm okay with it. But personally, I didn't. I didn't need it. Like, you know, I, I'm fine with a, a four hour baseball game that, that Dodgers Astros game a couple days ago uh, that went into, I think it was 13 innings might've been 12. Um, you know, that was fun. Uh, the runner on second base was weird, but anyways, uh, back to the three pitcher minimum, there's, it's going to be a whole new strategy. And I think teams are obviously adapting to that. I like the, you know, the idea of bringing in that one, that guy who can face one batter record one out and that's his job. You know, you're paying him three or four million dollars to get one batter out 
every two days. So uh, I think that's a cool, that was a cool strategy. Um, you know, we might still see that with two outs because pitchers have to finish the inning. They can face one batter as long as they finish the inning. Um, so we might see that from time to time. Uh, it disappoints me that that's no longer in the game. But at the same time, you know, let them pitch. Let that, let that guy escape the jam. Um, you know, get in with bases loaded and no outs and then make him escape that jam, you know, without allowing a run and recording three outs. So I see the pros and cons to it. Ultimately, if it was only done to improve the pace of play, like if, if Manfred was weighing it and he's like, well, it improves the pace of play, but it's really not good for baseball, then I don't like it. But if he truly believes it's better for baseball, not only in terms of pace of, pace of play, but also with how the game is played, then, you know, I guess I can, I can adapt to it. And I know baseball teams are adapting to it and changing their strategies too. So, you know, it is what it is. Um, but it, it's something we're all going to have to get used to, but I think I'll be okay with it in the long run. For sure. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned how weird the runner at second base was. And, you know, I saw it last night with the Giants and the Padres and, um, you know, I see it both. I see both sides of the argument. You know, when I first, I thought it was a joke when I first saw it being proposed. Uh, I thought to myself, you know, this is something that they do after if if a tournament baseball game goes too long and there's another team sitting in the stands waiting for the game. This is what they do to try to get those guys on the field. And I experienced it last year, summer baseball, of course. Um, and I thought it was great. I thought it was really fun. There was pressure on both sides to perform, um, especially the home team. The home team, and this could be a con to it too. I know um, FP Santangelo Jr. Uh, tweeted this out earlier, and him and I have had these talks about it. But he doesn't like it. He thinks that it's it's you know the the home team is at a complete disadvantage. You know they're starting the inning off with a runner at second base. Um, and then what if the away team scores, there's way more pressure on the home team to produce. I still like it. I still think that, you know, fundamentally it's going to show what teams are good at that, you know, moving the runners over, doing the little things right, you know, getting a ball in the air. I, I think it's really going to help teams play fundamentally sound, but I could understand the rage around it. Yeah. I mean, I personally, I don't like it. Um, I think, you know, it it gets rid of the luck almost. By putting a runner on second base, you're looking at 100% skill and who's going to be able to get that runner home. Um, whereas, you know, I think definitely skill should be obviously the main thing that baseball is centered around. But, you know, funny bounces or, you know, uh, even a bad call, uh, you know, those are the things that make up Major League Baseball. And those are, you know, what make me love the game so much, those little aspects of not everything's going to be perfect every single time. It's not going to go exactly how it should go. Um, that's what keeps fans watching, uh, in my opinion. So I, I see what impact it's going to have, and I think if they're going to test it out, um, this year is the year to do it, but I hope it doesn't return. Uh, I know they implemented it in the minor leagues back in 2018, uh, and I saw a couple of games that went to extra innings that had it um, in the minors. And you know, it seemed like there was some good energy around the stadium because you have a runner in scoring position uh, every, you know, every at bat. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, the baseball traditionalist, I guess, in me, even though I'm not, you know, some old guy who's been watching baseball for 60 years, uh, I, personally, I, I wasn't a huge fan of it. Fair, yeah. I, and I could, you know, I wouldn't have a problem if it, if it um, didn't return. But, you know, I like seeing new stuff being brought into the game. Um, so another thing that comes with baseball in 2020 
is a risk and the possibility that it could be taken away again at any point in time. And we've seen now an outbreak with the Marlins and it's affected their opponent at the time, the Phillies, which is now affecting the, the maybe not a chain reaction, but now the Cardinals have some cases and there's games being canceled. The Brewers are now affected. And I think I, I saw something where like all these games are getting canceled. Um, so what would it take? And I'm sure a lot of listeners or viewers, what would it take for baseball to be canceled again in 2020 with all these outbreaks? Would it be five, six teams having this? Would it be maybe another two teams having this? Is it falling apart already? What's going on? Well, it's an interesting you know, discussion because in one aspect of it, they're playing like in, in basketball, it was you play a team for one day and then you move on to the next team and then you move on to the next team. Whereas in baseball, you have three game series. So you're playing the same team for three days. Whereas there, you know, obviously the risk, it's, it's still high because you're playing them three days in a row, but at least you're not traveling and at least you're not you know, going to face a new team every day. At least you have a homestand of, three games, maybe six games, maybe nine games. So there's a, there's a little bit of a reduced risk there, which means you know, they can live off those postponements and still have other teams play. Um, whereas we saw with basketball the first time around, they shut it down immediately once one player got it. Uh, but at the same time, you, know, you're, you can't play baseball into, uh, into you know, late November or December. Um, I know that had been discussed really earlier in the year uh, when they were still discussing ideas for baseball to come back. But you can't play baseball in that late fall, early winter um, especially not in places, you know, like where I am in New England and stuff like that. So if, you know, you can't push those games back enough and at the same time there's, you know, you can't have double headers every day in my opinion. Uh, I think there, it won't happen yet, but I think if these cases, like, for example, if you have six teams have outbreaks like these every two weeks, maybe it's okay for now, but if you get into, you know, mid-September, and that's happening. You just have to shut it down because I think the later we get, if this keeps, if this, if outbreaks like these keep happening throughout the season, then you know, base, the baseball shouldn't be played. It can be played. Teams can find a way to work around that, call up players from the minors, sign free agents, and stuff like that. But obviously, there's just too much of a risk. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's great to remember. Um, well, not great to remember, but it's important to remember that baseball and sports, for that matter, doesn't really matter. Um, that was a lot of matters in that sentence. Sports and baseball take a back seat to what, is, uh, what is going on in this country in terms of health. Um, so I think that's important to note. So commissioner Anderson Picard, if you were the commissioner of baseball and, you know, Rob Manford for whatever reason, you know, is took a back seat and, and you're his boss now, or he's somewhere else. Um, <laughs> What protocols would you put in place for these teams to follow? I know it's really hard to social distance in the dugout. Nobody does it because it's impossible. Um, so what would you put in place to kind of make sure everything's in check? Well, it's tough because I don't know what's – they're like, like you said, they've put these rules in place, but they aren't being followed. And, you know, if you have an umpire trying to keep track of all that, the umpire's not going to reject someone for a high five, even if he's told he should. I saw a picture when uh, Nick Senzel and Mike Moustakas were high-fiving each other, and then the next day they both, you know, weren't in the lineup. Moustakas was placed on the 10-day injured list. So it's, it, it is stuff like that, like high-fives or just walking by each other that could 
end the season. And at, at this point, I don't think you can really say, all right, we have to ban this. You cannot walk by each other. You cannot high-five each other. I think at this time, there's, it should still be allowed that players can do that because there's no real way to enforce that unless you want them spread out throughout the seats, no high-fives, stuff like that. Um, and in terms of you know, just limiting that spread and travel, I think it would have been cool to play uh, a bubble in a hub city. I know the NHL and NBA have seen incredible test result numbers. And Major League Baseball has too, with the exception of you know, what's happened in the last few days. Uh, the league did say that other than that Marlins outbreak, they hadn't had any positive tests for four or five days, which was you know, a good, good number compared to past results. But uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few weeks now that these outbreaks are happening and, you know, again. Uh, will that trigger more random spot positive tests throughout the league, or will it really remain in those enclosed groups of three or four teams? Um, so I think you you know there's no real way to change the rules unless you know more about that. So if I were the commissioner, I would wait a few more days if I were if I were to change something. As of right now, you know I think Manfred's Manfred's doing a pretty good job. Um, I think basically the only options right now are keep the season playing or shut it down. I don't think there's any in between. I don't think there's any way to enforce, you know, other rules that would limit the spread more. I think he's, you know, overall the rules are pretty good. There's adjustments, but like I said, you can't really enforce those. So I think they're doing the best they can right now, uh, the league, to, you know, keep baseball playing with as many restrictions as they can possible. For sure. And um, there's a new playoff format as well. There's going to be more teams, and that was like a couple hours up until first pitch, they decided on this, or they had to decide on this by first pitch. So there's going to be new, uh, more playoff teams. So do you like that idea of more teams getting in? I mean, you know, I think it's just for this year, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and we might see sub 500 teams get in, which some people say it's a bit of an off kill and others say, well, if they could get through the, through the the powerhouse teams, so say if like a you know a team like the you know the it's, it's the Mariners, a really bad team, right? They get into the playoffs somehow, some way. Um, you know, it would be it would be interesting to see how they would have to get through the Yankees, how they would have to get through the Astros, um, you know, the Twins, all these great teams in the American League. So, would if if a team were to win a championship here in twenty twenty? Would it be a legitimate title, or would you have to wait and see how they did it? I would. I've been saying this all along. I think it would be legitimate. You know, you're still getting teams. You're getting past teams like that, like the Yankees. I think they said the ALDS would be short, or the AL and NLDS would be shortened to three games. So that puts a little more luck into it. Um, but I would still consider it all legitimate. Um, you know, if, like I said, if you're getting past the Yankees, um, the Astros, the Nationals, uh, Cubs, Phillies, teams like that. Um, Dodgers, obviously, then yeah, it, it should be considered legitimate, even if it is on a smaller, you know, smaller sample size of one game, three games, five games. Uh, so there's something that happened a um, couple days ago at this time, at the time of this recording, that had to do with the Astros cheating scandal, and we haven't heard about it for months. We've been kind of overwhelmed by COVID nineteen, and um, you know when. And I, I think the Astros really were saved by COVID-19 and in a weird way, because if this was a normal uh, season, you know, it, it'd be more fresh in the minds of other teams. And the Dodgers were the team that were um, 
one of the main teams that we look at and say they were directly affected by this. Whether or not the Dodgers would have won the World Series in 2017, we don't know. We'll never know. But Joe, Joe Kelly decides to go up and in on Alex Bregman. When I mean up and in, I mean head level. Um, and Joe Kelly is not Greg Maddox. Um, never has been. Um, really, he's a guy that, uh, if you look deep into the metrics, throws his curveball a lot. And if you talk to – I've talked to a couple Dodger people, a uh, couple Dodger media people about Joe Kelly. And, you know, sometimes he doesn't even throw his fastball in some outings. It's, it's He's more of a curveball guy. And, um, you know, it was interesting to me. And I think, yeah, sending a message. And, you know, he threw up and into a couple guys, Correa, uh, Guriel. And – if he wants to send a message, that's great. I'm all for sending a message, but once it goes up and in, once it goes, you know, head area, that's not just ruining a guy's baseball career, possibly. That's ruining a guy's life. Um, so that I would not do. Walking off the mound with your tongue out as much as I created gold content for John Boy. It, it, it looked like a clown walking off the field and Major League Baseball suspended him eight games, which is such a cheap shot. Eight games for, you know, somebody did the math. It's like 21, 22, 23 games in a regular season. Eight games is too much, but I also don't like what Joe Kelly did. What do you think about that entire situation? Well, I definitely wouldn't have gone more than eight. Uh, I think eight was probably the highest they could have gone there. And I have a couple thoughts on it. I'll try and say them now. I don't know if I'll be able to remember all of them. But first of all, like you said, this could have taken away – those players, those hitters' careers, or even their lives, or, you know, not, not necessarily killed them. I mean, it could have, but, uh, you know, impacted how they live the rest of their lives with brain damage or a head injury or neck injury, something like that. So it could have gone, you know, really bad, really fast. Um, I, was the pitch to Bregman, was that a fastball? Because I know the Correa one was not a fastball. I think it was a fastball up and in, and the Correa one was like a weird, like, slider or whatever that he was trying to it looked I mean you could make an argument that he was trying to clip the inside corner with the slider or something or a curveball but I think the the one to Correa was a curve was an off-speed pitch yeah I know the Correa one was off-speed the Bregman one was what I was wondering so if if the Bregman one was fast you know that one I'm not as concerned about because there are times where you have to throw you know not have to throw but where you throw at a, a batter to brush him back like that the one that I I took more seriously was the Correa one um you know just how he handled that whole situation. The taunting was interesting. It was, like you said, it was hilarious. But at the same time, you know, that certainly, I would imagine that added a game or two onto that suspension. Um, but, you know, I think it's, I think he deserved it. I haven't quite decided yet. At first I was saying, yeah, he deserves the eight games. I don't care if that'd normally be 22 in a regular season. You know, he threw at someone's head. He, he threw at someone else. He taunted someone. He's you know, had a history of being, you know, just a, excited player like that my the background on my phone screen is of him you know punching uh you know in that fight with the Yankees so uh he's (laughs) he's got a history of of you know doing stuff like that but Tyler uh, Austin huh yeah he was you know that (laughs) you know this judge looking on in the background was looking at it now it's just lands that punch right at it right on him but uh, anyways he he has that history of being that type of player and that certainly impacted you know the league's decision also, something else I wanted to, uh, to mention was that Chris Young is the new Major League Baseball Senior Vice President of Baseball Operations, so it's no longer Joe Torre deciding these uh, suspensions and punishments. Um, so 
with, you know, this was Chris Young's first disciplinary uh, move and first decision on a matter like this. So uh, if he can be consistent, you know, if, he, if, if, this, if, a situa- if a situation like this happens again and he issues a similar suspension, I'll be good with it. We don't have, we don't know a lot about how he handles these situations because we've seen a lot from Joe Torrey and guys like that in the past. So if he's consistent, then great, you know, I'm on board with this. But if someone else throw, you know, if another pitcher throws at someone else's head later on and gets a two-game suspension or has a four-game suspension appealed and they get it down to two, you know, that will make me, uh, you know, a little more frustrated about this deci- this decision because all in all, consistency, uh, if you want to send a message, which is what they're trying to do with this eight-game suspension, you have to be able to send that message but also be consistent. So uh, you know, that's, that's, I, that, that's partly why I, I haven't quite made a decision yet on if I, you know, if I fully agree with it or not. Um, and I'm also curious, I know Kelly appealed and I don't believe there's been a ruling on that yet. So if that gets brought down, um, you know, to six or four, uh, then, you know, that'll be another thing I'll weigh. As of right now, just for a straight, straightforward answer, I'm good with the eight game suspension, but, you know, that could change in the, later on. That's interesting you bring up Chris Young because Chris Young back in the day, um, and this is, this is, has nothing to do with the situation at all, but. Chris Young actually got in a fight when he was with the Padres. He got in a fight with um, Derek Lee of the Cubs, and he threw a punch at Derek Lee, and it's a great picture uh, and everything. Anyways, uh, Chris Young is a guy that did not throw hard. And speaking of guys that you know maybe are not throwing hard, we are seeing a um, – I don't know if it's an epidemic. It's not an epidemic. That's not the right word to use. But it's it's kind of interesting we're seeing – Starting pitchers have their velocity go down completely. Uh, just to read it off here, uh, Madison Bumgarner was averaging 91.7 miles an hour last year. And then this year so far, he's at 87.9. Charlie Morton was at 95.1 uh, last year. This year, he's at 92.4. Last year, Aaron Nola was at 93.5. This year, he's at 92. Actually, that one's not that big of a difference, one mile an hour off. So if this does become something that is regular and, you know, more guys start to show it and it becomes noticeable, would this be a result of maybe, you know, coming back to uh, spring training 2.0 and firing everybody, uh, not firing everybody, firing up the, uh, the arms right away. Cause you know, these guys came back and it was, you know, back to bullpens, back to live hitters. And it was just, rapid fire and so is that maybe the reason why uh because we've seen you know Corey Kluber get hurt Justin Verlander come down with the forearm elbow thing is this you know maybe something that has to do with rushing back in terms of getting back in the grind of of throwing yeah I would think so and I was just going to mention before you said it um you know the the injuries because if there were if there was the velocity loss but nobody getting injured I would have said no it's probably not them rushing back but uh, if you know with those injuries happening you have to think it's got to be related because like you said the velocity drop just coming rushing back into camp that quickly you know I know that was a main concern was hitters can probably adapt and get back in after a day of training a day or two of training because you know they've been working on this they you know they have history obviously of hitting it's just a different type of of, of style you don't have to you know train for a week or two to get back into that but pitching is so different um that, you know, it has to be, I would think it has to be related to that spring training pitchers report early. So they get almost a month and a half of training before they get uh, before first pitch on opening day. Um, whereas this was uh, two weeks this time around before this opening day 2.0. Uh, 
a little more than two weeks, three weeks, but still it's, I, I would say it's definitely related. Uh, and hopefully it comes back down like the, not necessarily the velocities go up, but hopefully the number of pitchers getting injured decreases. I hope, you know, obviously you hope nobody gets hurt. So if like at this point players have that extra training, because I would consider playing in games, uh, I would consider that training for them. So at this point, hopefully we've gotten all the injuries out of the way and everyone is back to almost normal shape at this point. Um, you know, you hate to think of injuries as a good thing at any time, but seeing the injuries um, that, that have happened, you know, start to decrease, that would be a good, a good sign. Yeah, for sure. And I don't, you know, we don't obviously don't know what Walker Bueller, for example, was doing during this big layoff. We don't know how often he was throwing and uh, maybe teams knew, but um, yeah, obviously there's some correlation there. So in terms of the trading deadline, we're recording this on July 31st, and it would have been the regular trade deadline. You know, you probably would not even be on this show. You'd be working hard trying to come, you know, get a hold of all these deals that are happening. So this trading deadline is interesting. It's now August 31st, and, you know, I, you know, I, I would not be shocked to see teams be very hesitant uh, this deadline, especially since, especially in terms of rentals. Uh, so if there's a guy that has a year left on his deal and you're trading one month, you're trading for one month of him, I don't understand what you would give up. Like I, don't, I wouldn't, sure as heck wouldn't be a top five, top eight prospect. So what do you think the game plan for some of these contending teams, some of these rebuilding teams would be this deadline? Yeah, I mean, you have a good point. If Mookie Betts hadn't signed that extension, what would he be worth if this trade? Obviously, the Dodgers aren't trading him, but wouldn't or wouldn't have traded him anyways. But just as an example, um, I think going into it, it's going to teams are going to be hesitant to trade for that reason. Nobody's going to come to an agreement. Your players are going to or teams are going to think, you know, take the Indians for example. I don't think they'll be selling, but if they were to trade Francisco Lindor, they'd want what he's normally worth. A team buying him would want what you would normally give up. For a player for having them for two months um, so I think just because of that teams aren't going to reach an agreement and we're not going to see any star players traded uh, and probably not that many rentals it'll probably end up being someone who you can get a year and a half of control or two and two and a half years of control for um, and at the same time that normally at the trade deadline 50% of the teams are buying 50% are selling but with a shortened season where you know there's not as much you know at this point not as many teams have separated themselves from the pack as clear leaders coupled with the idea that the playoffs are expanded to 16 teams, you're going to have 24 to 25 teams that think they're contending. That means you have five sellers. And those five sellers are going to be obviously bottom of the standings, really bad teams. And they probably don't have that many star players that they can trade. Because obviously when you're a good team or when you're a bad team like that with a star player who's a rental, you trade them away. But we don't really have that this year. Um, so with that, I, I just don't see a busy trade deadline, um, you know, in terms of, the, the short rental period, different players and just different team statuses. I just, it's going to be, there's going to be trades, but they're going to be, you know, smaller, minor trades, no big name players on the move this year. Yeah. <laughs> what a plot twist that would be if we saw the, uh, the Detroit Tigers buying at the deadline, like nobody would have expected that. And that, that would be hilarious. Uh, anyways, let's, let's get into you a little bit. So, um, how old were you when you got into sports journalism, um, and how did you get started? Um, 
when did I get into sports journalism? Sports in general, sports journalism, probably 12 or 13. It's hard to put a number on it exactly. Um, But storytelling and journalism in general, I know when I was with a friend, I was like nine. And we started a little newspaper that we shared with our families. We walked down the road. We saw, you know, a car, uh, like a, a, a piece of a car in the road. We wrote about that. We went into the woods and we saw, I don't know, stupid as it sounds, we saw birds and we wrote about that. Uh, you know, just that relaying of stories um, that, you know, that started when I was nine. But uh, I'd say, you know, the legitimate sports journalism on my personal blog uh, and uh, uh, when I was around 12, I started an Instagram uh, for Boston sports where I recorded a podcast and it quickly grew to about uh, 1200 followers. Um, started that probably around, probably around the same time when I was 11 or 12. Um, so those, you know, those were the first two things that, you know, really pointed in that direction of sports journalism, but then sports illustrated kids back in 2000, uh, I think that was 2018 when I started writing for them. Um, so that was the first sign that, okay, people actually like my work. Like, uh, people are noticing me and they actually want what I've written. That's pretty cool. So I guess if you really want to put an exact number on it, 2018 would be the year, but uh, in prior years, as early as 2000, 2013, 2014 was when I really got started, uh, you know, being fascinated with journalism, but the sports in general, just being interested in sports goes way back to when I was like three, I was watching Red Sox games when I was three or four. I mean, it's, it's been over a decade of, loving sports awesome so you know you're 12 years old sitting here watching red sox games is there like a a a certain sports writer sports reporter sports broadcaster that you looked at and said that is the guy i want to be that guy i look up to that guy but you know maybe someone you read everything they wrote who is that guy for you or who is that who is that guy or gal for you yeah for me it was chris cotillo um i mean he was practically what 16 or 17 at the time, if I had to imagine. Um, But uh, it was a trade deadline one year. I was doing, I think I was doing a live stream. I had like one person listening. It was probably my mom or my dad. But uh, I was, you know, his Twitter page was the one I was refreshing because it was the trade deadline day and there was a bunch of, you know, rumors coming out. And he was retweeting stuff, posting his own stuff. And I was like, who is this guy? He seems to be on top of a lot of stuff. And I Googled him. I'm like, oh, he's 20 years old. He's from Massachusetts. He lives, so he lives nearby. He was also, He's half the age of the Ken Rosenthal's out there. So I thought that was pretty cool because obviously when you're someone young like that, you want to see other younger people uh, in the industry because those are the people you look up to. So, you know, uh, I had my computer screen open to probably tabs with 15 guys, Ken Rosenthal, Jeff Passan, John Heyman, guys like that. But Chris Catillus was the one I kept checking because, you know, I just felt that not relation because I wasn't obviously not at that level, still not at the level of Chris Cotillo, but uh, just that, you know, this is cool. He lives nearby. He's this age. He loves baseball too. You know, he loves the trade deadline as much as I do. Um, I guess that was, that was the first of many uh, inspirations, I guess. Yeah. And of course, uh, well, for me, you know, of course, everybody's going to point to the, the Jeff Passens, the Ken Rosenthal's, the Bob Knight, the, well, (laughs) <laughs> the <laughs> Nightingale is he gets a he, he gets an interesting rap, but he's overall a good writer. He's just got an yes. interesting Twitter presence. Um, but for me, like Devin Fink, that guy in a second life, I would want to be him. I mean, he's he's got it all down, uh, writing for Fangraphs now. So, how does a high school kid like you 
run like 1400 different sites write for like 1200 other different sites how do you even have time for this because i was having trouble figuring out when i'm going to do algebra and figuring out when i'm going to get in the weight room for baseball get home late at night after these games um and i'm sure you've had these these run-ins too with with schedules so how do you have time for this <laughs> yeah i mean just being you know fine like being you know really not strict on myself but whenever there's a period of time you know don't i'm not much of a video games person um so when i have that time i just go for it i do my homework you know as as soon as i can study halls at school i'll be writing when i probably shouldn't be writing but uh you know just finding times like that because there's you know when you not manage a staff of people but when you have to edit people's work or write your own content the world's not going to wait for you to do that so you have to find that time uh, it's challenging. There have been times where I've missed deadlines um, and other people have had deadlines, you know, that they've been waiting on me for like to edit their articles and uh, I've missed those deadlines. But, you know, people have been pretty, pretty great to this point and uh, understanding that this is a, still a pretty small operation and uh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm a high school student, so not everything's going to come in on time. But, you know, just being as, as much as I can as uh, attentive and focused on, you know, what's in front of me and what I have to do, setting my mind to it. Once I, once I sit down and start editing something, I edit 10 articles. I don't get up and go get food or anything like that. I just, I just grind and work and stuff like that. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's my ringtone. It's the NFL on Fox song. It, it's a good alarm. It, it, hold on. Yeah, it's, it's really scary when it goes off and I just jumped. So I can't wait to look at that. That gets me, that got me hyped up for football season. Yeah. I miss that. I miss that sound. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's gonna. I pictured Joe Buck and Troy Aikman in the booth already. Um, so social media has been super important uh, in this new age of journalism, um, and it's given me opportunities. I'm sure it's given you opportunities. So, how important has that been for what you've been able to accomplish? Oh, 100 percent. Basically, everything that you know everything that you see in my bio, the, the different roles that I have, those have all come through social media. When I first, my first paid writing job was, uh, you know, NFL Fan Blitz, which turned into Fan Source, which turned into Primetime Sports Talk. Um, but when I first joined NFL Fan Blitz, it was through the Connecting Sports Writers Twitter page, which you're probably familiar with. Uh, you know, they have 10,000 followers. They, can, they post different job openings in sports media. Uh, and they connect different sports uh, media members and content creators with each other. So I first learned about that job from there. Um, I got actually, actually before that was MLB Daily Dish. So that was through social media as well um, through Chris Cotillo because I saw he wrote for MLB Daily Dish. Um, you know, that's what he, he didn't work for them when I joined them, but uh, that's what you know made me interested in that site. So really the power of social media is incredible. And like I said, I probably would have, you know, sport, the Sports Illustrated Kids position was not through uh, social media, but everything else that I've uh, joined and, you know, began a, a path with, those are, you know, social media 100% all the way. So do you have a favorite interview or story that you've ever done? I know that's probably hard because you've written a lot. Um, I hate to go straight to the, you know, the most famous person I've interviewed, but uh, I interviewed Alex Rodriguez back in 2018 uh, over the phone. Um, but uh, he, you know, he called me. I was like, well, Alex Rodriguez is calling me. Um, I, I learned about the interview a day before they're like, you know, my editor for Sports Illustrated Kids said, hey, Alex Rodriguez is, uh, you know, wants to chat for about 
20 minutes. And then the next day he, uh, I was home at my desk. He called me and we, we talked about you know, just his life in the broadcasting booth on the field for about 20 minutes. So that was pretty cool. Um, and again, that's just the most famous, you know, person that I've interviewed so far. So that came straight to my head. Um, but just interviews where, that you get to do in person are so much cooler as well. Um, I've done a couple in Portland, Maine with the Portland Sea Dogs double-A baseball team. Um, I've done, I did two pieces down there for, or up there for Sports Illustrated Kids. Um, so those, you know, I guess those are the ones that stand out. Um, I've spoken with a lot of people, like you mentioned, um, you know, even if it's just uh, a sentence for the quote, uh, the piece I interviewed you and a couple other high school students yeah. for uh, about the coronavirus shutting down sports seasons, that was pretty cool. Uh, I don't think I'd enter, ever interviewed, uh, you know, teenagers before, so that was fun. Um, it's a little intimidating just reaching out to people the same age as me. You know, I wouldn't text my friends from school saying, hey, I'm going to write a story about you. So that was a little weird. Um, but, you know, I got through that and I wrote that piece and had a bunch of great uh, conversations with people whose sports seasons were shut down. So that was, you know, that was my most recent, uh, I guess, notable interview. Um, but that was that was a pretty cool one to write and just, you know, I guess straying away from just the idea of interviewing someone and just the, that whole topic in general. That was probably the one that, uh, you know, my favorite so far. And I have a, I have a funny uh, A-Rod story real quick. So it was Sunday Night Baseball last season uh, at Oracle Park, and the Giants were playing the Phillies, and the game was over. And my brother is – he works in the, the Coke slide in left field, and he waits for the kids to come down and everything. And we were waiting for him at the back gate where the, the parking lot is, where the players park, the media – and, you know, Vaskersian left already, and um, Mendoza left already. Boog Shambi was walking out to his car. Boog Shambi almost hopped in the car that A-Rod was supposed to go into. And so Shambi didn't have – there's no other car there for him. So A-Rod walks out, and here's, here's my experience with A-Rod. Um, <laughs> some lady actually awesome. called him over and was like, Alex, Alex, come here. I love you. So, you know, A-Rod walks over and takes a you? selfie with Is her. It, were you the lady? No, I was not the lady. I, you know what? That would have been so fitting, though. So she takes a selfie with them, and I was like, can I get one? So I take a selfie with them. Funny story. Later that night, he's in San Francisco having dinner with the ESPN crew. His car gets broken into. You might have heard this story. And they steal, like, yeah. thousands of dollars worth of stuff. And I get framed for this, you know, everybody on Twitter, all my peeps on Twitter, they're like, oh, Stephen had something to do with it. And I'm not going to deny it because it's a pretty awesome thing to be connected to. But, um, you know, and the news covered it. The news showed that picture. The local news showed that picture. And it was, that was, you know, my run in with A-Rod is definitely more embarrassing than yours. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, uh, mine went pretty, pretty Mine went pretty smooth. It was all over the phone, so I didn't. I wasn't framed for anything like that. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was definitely interesting. So, real quick before we head off, I promised that I'd get into umpiring with you. Do you have a strike three call? I I don't. I wish I did. I've been, you know, I was a little intimidated the first person. The first person I rung up, it was just a simple strike three. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten a little more of a booming voice now that I've become more comfortable um uh, we do the coronavirus we've been behind the mound umpiring uh, we recently switched to behind the plate in just one town that i because i do several towns so in one of the towns we're behind the plate that actually made me a little more comfortable uh you know just feeling like that presence of being behind a plate made me feel it's more like an umpire so i was a little more comfortable then 
doing a big strike three call, but I don't have any motion or anything. I'm still just strike three. Yeah. It's pretty simple. <laughs> so when you first eject someone, you're going to need to come back, back on this show and explain it. Cause that is going to be a top notch story. Yeah, absolutely. I've, uh, last night, actually, I once had to eject someone, but, uh, it, it ended before it came to that, but it was a player. I just, I, you know, if a coach yells at me and argues with me, I'm fine with it. But when I start to hear players yipping at me, like, oh, please don't do this. I don't want to eject you. Like, it's going to, you know, everything that comes after the ejection, coaches getting mad, players getting mad. I don't even know if there's like a process of telling the league or something like that. Like, I hope to never have to eject someone because, you know, it's pretty rare that someone at the 10-year-old level will get ejected. But if that happens, I will definitely <laughs> come back and let you know about it. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you hope you don't have to eject anybody. I hope you do. <laughs> um. <laughs> never like it. I heard... I heard last week when I was umpiring, or two weeks ago, uh, from behind the mound, a player in the first base dugout said, oh, when are they going to get robo-umps? I'm like, oh. whoa, <laughs> calm down. <laughs> that's, def that's definitely an insult that you didn't think you wanted to hear um, at the 10-year-old at the level, that's for sure. Now I want to umpire. You've inspired me to, to become an umpire of my own, so... That should be interesting. Anderson, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Again, you guys could find him on Twitter at Anderson Picard. You guys could find him um, on Primetime Sports Talk, where he's the editor-in-chief. And you guys could find him, of course, on MLB Daily Dish. And uh, he's also the manager of Sports Writing Pack, which is uh, a site that connects members of the sports content community. Uh, so, Anderson, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, always, always a pleasure. Love talking sports. You know, uh, I've expanded. I've done a lot of Zoom interviews and stuff like this over the summer. I really haven't been on any podcasts or shows before that, so it's really been great this summer hopping on a bunch of different shows and talking sports. I would definitely love to come back if the uh, if the opportunity presents itself. Awesome. You guys could follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RizzoCast. Um, thank you for listening. Go ahead, hit the subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube. Uh, this is also distributed anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Uh, so go ahead and subscribe and do all that fun stuff. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for watching and have a great day.